Well, I'm looking forward to uh, this morning for a couple of reasons. First, I, I love this passage of Scripture that we're in, uh, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem for the last time uh, during His earthly ministry, before His crucifixion. I think there's, there's some really amazing gems here we're going to look at this morning. Uh, secondly, this is the last Sunday of the month, which means... Um, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So, yeah? Who's excited about that? Yeah, Amen. Me too. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we try to do that at least once a month. And I just come together to celebrate um, the blood and the body, right? And so I, I'm looking forward to that special time of fellowship and, and worship at the end. John chapter 12. Um, this is a, a rare thing in the New Testament to have an event recorded by all four Gospels, and that's what we have in John chapter 12. Um, so most of John, if, if you've noticed, is only recorded by the Apostle John. I think it's like 80%. A lot of, of John um, is only recorded by the Apostle John. But this event particularly is, is, is recorded also by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, that ought to grab our attention this morning, that this is a very significant event. Um, and we're going to see why, I think, as we, as we uh, read through it this morning. So uh, let's do that. Let's open up this morning. If you'll stand with me, John chapter 12. Uh, we're going to read only verses 12 through 16. And then we'll get into the rest of this next time. So it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him, and that they had done these things to Him. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, and um, God, I hope that we're just overwhelmed by Your faithfulness as the song that we just sang uh, goes, Lord. We just thank You, Father for being so faithful to us, Lord. Even, even when we're not faithful to You, Lord, You've been so faithful to us, Lord. Lord, we were not faithful to You in any way. And You sent Your Son to die for us, Lord. Father, I just, I just beg You that if one person tonight, this morning doesn't, doesn't know You as Savior, Father, that You would save them this morning, whether it be on the recording this morning, whether it be right here, Father, whatever it may be, uh, you know who needs to hear this, Father, and, and you know who needs to be saved. I pray that you would save them. Father, just move me out of the way this morning, and um, God, just remove all other distractions uh, from robbing you of your glory, God, this morning. We, we want to give you all praise and honor and glory as we open your word. And we ask that you would speak to us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. All right, so as you can see, this, this passage this morning deals with 
the very well-known account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Usually we talk about this on Palm Sunday, right? The, the week uh, prior to Easter. So usually every year we'll, we'll mention that on Palm Sunday. Um, at least mention it. Sometimes preach on it. But um, this just happens to be where we're at in John this morning. And so, um, and so we'll, we'll look at this event. Um, and really the remaining part of this chapter deals with the teaching of Christ associated with this event. Um, we've seen in, in previous weeks that the hatred of Jesus by the religious elite in Jerusalem has really reached a boiling point, right? And Jesus has been, uh, Jesus has kind of been laying low, uh, staying outside of the city of Jerusalem, uh, because as John has stated several times in his gospel, his time has not yet come, right? We've seen that phrase a few times already in John. So this text in John chapter 12 marks the beginning of the time. This is the hour. This is that time arriving uh, for Jesus. This marks the beginning of it. Uh, In fact, we'll see in verse 23 when we get there next time um, that Jesus Himself calls this the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified. This is the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified, He says. This is the time, finally, finally, for Jesus to come to Jerusalem to be betrayed and ultimately to be crucified. But as he enters Jerusalem, uh, that looks like the furthest thing from what the crowd has in mind. Uh, that, that doesn't look like that's about where this is about to go. Um, it looks like everything's fine and people are worshiping him. As he, as he comes in at the beginning of the week, the crowd is hailing Jesus as their king and messiah. But by the end of the week, they will be calling for Pilate to release the wicked criminal Barabbas. You remember that? And crucify Jesus. Release to us Barabbas. We want you to crucify Jesus, they'll say. The same crowd, many of the same people. So we'll see through this dialogue in this chapter, the words of Jesus that kind of kick off that, that, that change in the crowd, that transformation that we'll see. Um, but as we, as we look at the text this morning, um, I want us to notice a few points uh, regarding this, this so-called triumphal entry. First of all, I want you to notice that this day was prepared beforehand by Christ. Prepared beforehand by Christ. And, you know, for this point, uh, we're really going to have to rely on the other three accounts of, of, of this event in the synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're specifically going to look at Luke you want to be turning there but John goes right into Jesus riding into Jerusalem but all all the other three accounts give a little bit more detail on on how this all happened on how this was was all set up um so turn with me to to Luke chapter 19 if you will Uh, Luke chapter 19 probably just a few pages back in your Bible And we're going to read, starting in verse 28, uh, read Luke's account of what happened, which, which really mirrors Matthew and Mark here. Uh, so let's read that, starting in verse 28. Uh, let me get to the right page here. Okay, it says, When he had said this, he went, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, At the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? 
Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were, so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. As we see here, this this event um, doesn't just happen by chance. Uh, The synoptics show us clearly that Jesus planned every detail of this event. Uh, Jesus had already planned this event, and we know, of course, Jesus had planned this even way before this point, right? Jesus planned this from eternity past. Um, but, but we see that Jesus had a plan for this event. It's the day after this banquet that we read about last week at Simon's house um, that is honoring Jesus, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus wanted to honor Jesus, uh, where Mary anoints um, Jesus' body, and Jesus says, You're, she's anointing me for my burial, right? Uh, so Jesus is now ready to go enter into Jerusalem. And as he approaches the city, he, he instructs two of his disciples to go ahead of him into the nearby village, and, and he tells them exactly what they will find. He says there's going to be a, there's going to be a colt tied. Uh, Matthew adds there's going to be a, a young colt and its mother. Uh, so we see that in Matthew. And, and Jesus instructs them to untie them and bring them to him. <clears throat> He says that if someone questions you, you're simply to say what? The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. Now, I personally wonder what what those two disciples were thinking as they entered the city to do this. So they're supposed to just walk into somebody's barn, steal their animals, right? That should be taken well, I'm sure. And and, and the owners are, are supposed to be satisfied with the reply, the Lord has need of it. That's it. That's all they have to say. The Lord has need of it. I, I don't know about you, but I think I might be a little bit nervous about this. I mean, you've seen Jesus, you know, do some amazing things. He has just raised a dead man. Okay, I'll grant you that. But still, I might be a little bit nervous. Like, how? what exactly is going to happen here? Are they going to be okay with us stealing their animals? I mean, I know what Jesus has said, but, you know, how many times have you thought that? I, 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 know, what, I know what Jesus says, but... Yeah, there's all these other obstacles, right? Um, nevertheless, the disciples do exactly as Jesus asked. They get the animals. Um, they are questioned about it. And indeed, the owner seems satisfied with the reply, the Lord has need of it. And they bring the colt and its mother to Jesus, and they throw their clothes on it. Um, I'm sure the disciples here were, were very confused, as they usually were. Right. Uh, I mean, wh- why are we, first of all, why are we taking someone else's donkey? Okay, why are we taking someone else's donkey? Why a donkey, by the way? Like, that's not a very intimidating creature. Why are we riding on this? Why not a horse? Uh, but Jesus had his plan all prepared just the way he wanted. We saw this a lot, like in the, in the Lazarus story, right? Jesus has his plans that we don't always understand. And Jesus had this plan prepared exactly the way that he wanted. He prepared it beforehand. He knew where the cult would be. He knew who the owners were. He knew that they would be questioned. But Jesus went ahead of them and he prepared those owners' hearts to be receptive of the plan, Right? It's the only explanation here. And, you know, I think there's a great parallel there 
um, to what God calls us to do in our lives. Uh, yeah, I have to commend the disciples here for just, they just took Jesus at his word. Maybe finally they've learned something. Right? They, they just finally just took Jesus at his word and they did it. Um, Ephesians 2.10. It says that we as Christians are God's workmanship. We're his workmanship. Or another word for that is masterpiece. Now, I love that. You know, if you're in Christ this morning, you are God's masterpiece. You know, there's not really any room for any low self-esteem. You can have low self-esteem. But in Jesus, man, you are a masterpiece. You are a masterpiece. You are a trophy of His love and His grace. You are God's trophy this morning. You are a masterpiece. He says that we are His masterpiece. And it says that we've been created in Christ Jesus. For what? Y'all know this. What are we created for? Good works, right? We are created for... Good works were created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared beforehand that we should walk in these good works. Jesus includes his disciples here to accomplish this huge work in his ministry. Um, he didn't have to do that, by the way, right? He, he didn't need his disciples to accomplish this plan. And likewise, Jesus invites us as believers to take part in his plans of building his kingdom. Amen? Amen? I know Heath's not here to amen y'all, but geez, you got to give me something this morning. Jesus invites us to take part in his plans of building his Kingdom, And I love that verse because it, it, it takes the pressure off of us. Like take the pressure off of us this morning. Take the pressure off of yourself. God does the planning. God does the going ahead of you. God does the softening of the hearts. God does the transforming. God does the work. God does the work. But yet He invites you to play a part. And we are blessed when we choose to just get out of our own heads thinking we're going to mess it up or, or, or say the wrong thing. And we, we just choose to take Jesus at His word and to walk in the works that He calls us to day by day. I'm not talking about some magical, like 10 years down the road work. I'm talking about today. What has God called you to do right now? When you leave this place, what is He calling you to do? Right there, just do it. And leave the rest up to Him. Take the pressure off of yourself. He's going to do the work anyway. You understand that? We are so, so prideful thinking that we can control everything. And we talked about this last week, but here I go ranting about it again, right? Uh, you know, we just, we think that we can control everything, guys. And as believers, it's just not going to happen. And that's not the way it was ever intended to happen. God has got this. He's got every work that He has called you to. And He's going to do all the work. But yet how gracious that He invites us to play a part. <clears throat> he prepares every detail. And then simply just asks for our obedience. So Jesus, with His entry into Jerusalem, He has it all planned out. And the Pharisees are, are plotting to kill Him. And ultimately, they do kill him. But let's understand that this was all in perfect accordance with Jesus' own plan. 
This wasn't a plan that the Pharisees came up with, oh, we're just going to kill Jesus. And they took it into their hands and they were able to accomplish it. No, this was in perfect accordance with God's plan. Jesus' own timing. And not a finger was laid on Him until the time was at hand. Not a finger was laid on Him until He willingly gave His body. And Jesus has, has really worked every detail to, to climax to this moment. The raising of Lazarus has really uh, its excited this enormous crowd who's arriving for Passover. Right? And it's been the tipping point for the Pharisees who are, you know, the rage has reached an all-time high. Um, the instruction to the disciples to go and prepare the donkey. The going before Him to prepare um, the donkey. So this, this entry was prepared beforehand completely by Jesus. Next, I want us to see that it was prophesied in, in great detail. Prophesied in great detail. Verse 12, uh, back in John here, tells us that a great multitude had come to the feast. And, and this was the feast of Passover, right? I just mentioned that. Um, so at the very minimum, there were at least several hundred thousand people in Jerusalem. At the very minimum. There were several hundred thousand. Mostly, most of these were Jews, of course. Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, uh, he, he records that on one Passover, there were 2.7 million people in the vicinity. That's uh, an unbelievable number, right? There's 2.7 million people in the vicinity. Most people think he was kind of exaggerating on that. But at the very least, there's several hundred thousand people, probably over a million people in the vicinity of Jerusalem here. Um, so when John says this is a great multitude, this is a very, very, very large crowd. Jewish males were expected to attend this feast. Jewish males from everywhere. And again, Luke gives us another interesting detail. Let's turn back over there. If, you're not, if you haven't turned back to John already, then stay there. Um, let's turn back over to Luke 19, and we're going to read a few more verses here. Verses 37 through 44. Luke says, Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I love this, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because, why? You did not know the time of your visitation. He says, because you did not know the time of your Visitation. The first few verses here in Luke look, look very similar to what we already read in John. But then starting in verse 39, Luke gives us a few more details here. First of all, the crowd 
is, is going crazy, right? They're, they're, they're quoting these messianic psalms and they're attributing, the Jesus, attributing them to Jesus. Now, as Gentiles, we don't necessarily realize that, right? We don't know our Old Testament as well as, as, well as the Jews do. But they're calling him their Messiah and their king. And in case we didn't get the point, the Pharisees come to our rescue, right? They are angry at Jesus and they rebuke Jesus uh, and, um, and, and they say, you need to rebuke your disciples, Jesus. They're calling you Jesus, the Messiah. They're calling you the Messiah. And of course, we know the opinion of the Pharisees on, on that point. They, they want Jesus dead, right? They're not about to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're rebuking Jesus. Now, um, when you study the Gospels, and we, we've seen a few times throughout John uh, that Jesus is, is never allowing himself to be exalted by the people as their earthly king. Um, many times Jesus will heal someone and then he'll command them not to tell anyone. Right? You see that many times in, in all four Gospels, really. Um, he'll heal someone and then he'll say, but don't tell anyone. Don't go and tell anyone what happened. Because why? What's that phrase? His time had not yet come. Right? His time had not yet come. Remember in John chapter 6, after he feeds the 5,000, which is more like 20,000, right? Um, after he feeds them, uh, miraculously, the people want to take him and make him king. Remember that back in John 6? And what does Jesus do? He, he, he refuses that. He re, he, it says he withdraws from them. He knows the time is not right. The time has not yet come. But then all of a sudden, at this event here in Luke and, and Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, we see the opposite. In fact, as we've already talked about, we see Jesus plan this. We see Jesus plan all the details about this entry into Jerusalem. And so as he rides in, the people are worshiping him as king. Uh, the Pharisees rebuke him. And Jesus says, says, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately Cry out. Uh, don't you just love that? He's saying this is the time for me to be, declared to be declared king. This is the day. This is the day. In fact, if you look at Psalm 18, that's the verses they're quoting there. If you look at Psalm 18, in that passage we see the verse, This is the day that the Lord hath made. What day is it really? We use it for every day, right? Oh, this is, we get up in the morning. This is the day that the Lord hath made. It's true. And the Lord did make this day, and we should rejoice and be glad in it. But the day it was talking about was this day. The day of the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is your day. And Jesus goes on here in Luke, and, and he rebukes the Jews for missing this day. He weeps over the city, and he says, If you had known... Even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. He says, this is your day, Israel. And you've missed it. Because he knows how this is about to progress, right? I mean, they are worshiping him, him as king. So they haven't missed it in that regard. But he knows what's about to happen throughout the week. He knows what they're about to do to him as the week progresses. And he says, you've missed it. You've missed your king. And he goes on to declare that now it's hidden from them. It's hidden 
from the Jews and that soon the Romans are going to destroy them and their temple. And why are they going to destroy them? Because they did not know the time of their visitation. Now, that is really interesting. Jesus expects them to know this day. He expects them to have this day marked and be ready for it, it seems. The day that their Messiah has come, He expects them to know. And He judges them, in fact, for not knowing. Now, why in the world would He expect that? Well, because He told them exactly when it would come. And we're going to look at one of the most, I think, marvelous, amazing uh, passages in all of the Bible, and that's in Daniel chapter 9. So I want you to turn over to Daniel chapter 9 with me. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is noticing that the time for the Babylonian exile of Israel is about to come to the end. Okay, because he's read the scriptures. Um, it's been about, he notices that it's been about 70 years that they've been in exile in Babylon. Uh, Daniel notices that and he begins to pray. Um, but he knows that because he studied the scripture. He knows the scripture. He knows that they were to be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. That is the time that God decreed for the exile in Babylon. And so Daniel is praying and he's confessing sin and he's making supplication on behalf of his people, Israel. And God sends Gabriel, the angel, to give Daniel a vision about what's next for Israel. And so we're going to pick up in in verses uh, 24 through 26. We're going to read all of this. And, And this is really difficult to explain in the time that we have left. So I'll try to do the best we can and hopefully... Um, hopefully you'll you'll understand what what we're doing here. But um, and so in verse twenty four, Gabriel speaking to to Daniel, and he says that seventy weeks are determined for Israel, and then he lists he lists several things that are to be fulfilled within these seventy weeks. He says, finish the transgression, make an end of sins. Uh, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. That's what he says. This is verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Let's keep reading here. Know, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah, and after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So in verse 24, Gabriel lists all of these things. Now looking, looking at these things, you're probably already thinking at least some of these were fulfilled in Jesus, right? So, so to finish the transgression, right? Jesus made an end of sin, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Jesus did that, right? And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now I think Jesus partially did that perhaps. Um, He did certainly for us, right? He brings in everlasting righteousness for all who would believe in Him. Has He done that to the fullest extent? I think there's still a future 
um, coming of that. To seal up vision and prophecy, that's where we have to be like, well, I don't, I don't know if that's quite fulfilled yet, uh, but it will be after these 70 weeks, and to anoint the most holy. And so the most holy uh, being Jesus. Um, so, so he says all of these things are supposed to come to pass in these 70 weeks. And we can look and we can say, looks like a lot of these things were fulfilled in Jesus. <clears throat> Some of it is probably still yet to come. And then Gabriel gives a timeline on when to expect this. He says that from the going forth of this command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven and sixty-two weeks. So how many weeks is that? Math majors? Sixty-nine weeks, right? That's seven plus sixty-two, sixty-nine weeks. Uh, now, we don't have time to develop this completely. But there are tons of resources on this. You can find this easily online. Um, there's a, a book by Sir Robert Anderson called The Coming Prince if, that details all of this, and he's the one that originally went back and, and did all of these uh, calculations for us. But if you want to check out that book, you're welcome to do that, and you'll get all of the detail of this. I can only give you a few details this morning because we don't have time. Um, <clears throat> and so you're just going to have to take my word for a few things this morning and verify them later. Uh, 7 plus 62 weeks is another way of saying 69 weeks. And when Daniel talks about weeks, he's actually talking about weeks of years. Okay, that's not obvious to us. But if you go back and study the passage, um, it does become obvious that these are, this is talking about weeks of years. So 69 weeks of years, he says. Uh, that's 69 times 7, right? There's 7 days in a week. So 69 times 7 years is anybody know 483 years so 483 years so he says from the time of this decree which at daniel's um at the time of this vision this decree hasn't even happened this decree to go and and rebuild jerusalem it hasn't even happened so this is still a future event for for daniel but he says from the time of that decree until messiah the prince there is 400 and 83 years. Now, from history, uh, we, we know that, that the command to restore and build Jerusalem, specifically as it states here, because there's three decrees, guess what? It's very complicated. There's three different decrees to do this. But the one that fits this, that talks specifically about the streets and the walls being rebuilt, the decree that, that it's talking about here that fits the context here, that command was made by Artaxerxes, um, on March 14th, 445 B.C. So March 14th, 445 B.C. And there were other decrees made by Artaxerxes, but this is the one that seems to fit the description here. So what we would expect is that if we go from the time of that decree and we go forward 483 years, we would see Messiah the Prince, right? That's what it says. We would see Messiah the Prince. And what we find is that when we take that date and move forward 483 years. That's exactly 173,880 days. And that's using a 360-day year calendar that the Bible uses. The Bible actually uses a 360-day year calendar. If you use that calendar, you go forward 173,880 days. You come to this date, April 6th, 32 A.D., which we know historically was the day that Jesus 
rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, recorded for us in John chapter 12, which is our text today. I should see some jaws dropping at this point, right? This is incredible. This is an incredible, incredible prophecy. Now, there's a lot of detail that I skipped over. and Again, I would would tell you to take the time to go verify this for yourself. This is easy to find online. Uh, Many people have done this. Um, Or read that book that I mentioned. Um, Remember that Daniel was written in the 6th century before Christ. Okay? Um, And we know for certain, absolutely a, a certain fact of history, that by 150 years before Jesus, they had all of the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek in print, including the book of Daniel. There's no debating, like, oh, maybe Daniel added this, or somebody added this to Daniel after Jesus had already come. No, there's no debate about that. Daniel was in print um, by the time of Jesus, and that's a historical fact. And Gabriel predicts to Daniel the exact day that Jesus would finally allow himself to be declared the Messiah of Israel. How amazing is that? Anybody else think that's amazing? Can I get an amen? Anyone? Anybody think this is amazing? This is incredible. God's Word is supernatural. This is not a book written by humans, okay? These are not prophecies foretold by humans. God used human vessels to write it, right? But God wrote this book. And it's absolutely incredible. Man, God's Word is amazing. Why aren't you spending more time with it? Why aren't you yet spending more time with it if you're not? This word is incredible. You know, there will always be unanswered questions that we have on this earth. Uh, All of us us have uh, unanswered questions because God chooses not to reveal everything to us in His wisdom. But we have absolutely everything we could possibly need to know that Jesus is exactly who He says He is. The evidence is so clear that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. So you might say this morning, well, if this is true, why why don't the Jews just accept this? Why don't the Jews accept this, right? That's a valid question. Well, actually, the Jewish rabbis, after the time of Christ, they commanded that Daniel 9 specifically not be used to calculate the time of the Messiah. That's how hardened the Jews are in their unbelief. And Jesus said they would be. Right? He says, now these things are hidden. That was His judgment on Israel in Luke 19. These things are now hidden from uh, your eyes. Now, now praise the Lord, there are some, still some Jews that come to Christ. Right? Praise the Lord for that. But nationally, The Jews are in a state of blindness about their Messiah. It's actually in the Talmud a curse on anyone who would try to use Daniel 9 to calculate the time of the Messiah. Because they know these dates have already passed. There's no chance of the Messiah coming if Daniel 9 is correct and Jesus is not Him. There's no chance. Now this Daniel 9 prophecy does go on to tell what will happen. And we're not even talking about the 70th week. That's the tribulation period, right? If you're in our small group on Thursday nights, we will talk about the 70th week at some point. Um, And and we'll, we'll, we'll go back in Daniel and we'll see it and then we'll read it in Revelation. But that's the tribulation period, I believe. 
And so we're not even going to talk about that this morning. But these are just the first 69 weeks. Um, But it says in verse 26 here that after the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Doesn't that describe exactly what happened to Jesus? He was cut off from the nation. He was killed, but not for himself, right? It wasn't anything that he had done. Remember, Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of this man's blood. He's innocent. He was cut off, but not for himself. And then he goes on in the next verse to say that the temple will then be destroyed. After the 69th week, before the 70th week. This was a temple that hadn't even been built yet in Daniel's day. right? Daniel is in Babylonian captivity. There is no temple in Daniel's day. But we know that it did get rebuilt. We also know that it got destroyed in 70 A.D., about 40 years after Christ, right? It got destroyed. So at the very least, if you don't want to buy into all these days, which I think is a very compelling argument, um, at the very least, we would have to admit the, the Messiah would have to come prior to the temple being destroyed in A.D. 70. There's no arguing about that. Any other conclusion is dishonest with the Old Testament text, which is why Daniel 9 is forbidden for the Jewish people to calculate this. We missed it. See, the question this morning is not, does the evidence support Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior of the world? The the evidence, guys, is overwhelming. The question is, am I prepared to worship Him As the Lord of my life. Am I ready to surrender to Him? For those of us who already have surrendered to Him. Am I ready to stop worrying about every little thing. And trust God with the details. He is a God of details. And just simply obey what He commands. Am I ready to admit that I don't have control. And just worship the one who does have absolute, complete, and utter control over every detail of my life. For those who saw Lazarus rise from the dead certainly had all the evidence they needed, right? But many of them still chose not to follow Jesus as Lord. And God certainly has given us, I think, an an equally incredible mound of evidence, even in the 21st century. That Jesus is exactly who He says He is. We have no excuse for not worshiping Him as Lord. There's no excuse. John points out, along with all three of the other synoptic accounts, uh, that another prophecy was fulfilled with this entry into Jerusalem. At verse 14, and we're we're back in John now. uh, Verse 14 says that Jesus rode on a donkey in order to fulfill the verse quoted in verse, in verse 15, which is Zechariah 9.9. So hundreds of years prior to this moment, the prophet wrote that not only would the Messiah come on a donkey, but on a donkey's colt, right? And that really brings us to our, our next and, and final point. Uh, this entry into Jerusalem was, was puzzling to the crowd. It was puzzling to the crowd Verse 16 tells us that even Jesus' disciples did not understand these things until after His resurrection, until after Jesus was glorified. 
when they were indwelled with the Holy Spirit after the resurrection, many of these things and these connections were brought back to their memory. Um, But the disciples, along with the entire crowd, they were a little bit puzzled that day about what was going on. They were a little puzzled about the methods of Christ. First of all, Jesus comes riding in on a baby donkey. That doesn't exactly strike fear into the hearts of the enemy, right? It's not exactly intimidating. The people would have expected a conquering king to come in on a white horse, right? Come in on a horse. That, that's the, the animal of a warrior. Ironically, that is the picture that we see of Jesus in Revelation 19 when he does come back a second time, right? His second coming. And he will do that, amen? He will be back. And he will be riding on a white horse that time. But that's still a future event. And when he does come, he will come in power. And he will come to conquer. And he will come to reign as king over the earth. But that's what the crowd expected the first time. It's hard to overstate the hunger that the people of Israel had for the Messiah to come. And deliver them from Rome. They felt so oppressed by the Roman people and they they knew these promises of God for their nation. And it's really really hard to overstate how, how, how anxious they were for these things to happen. Only about 150 to 200 years before this, Uh, They remembered the Maccabeus family. We talked about them a few weeks ago. Who They led a revolt against the Greeks and they reclaimed the holy city. And that brought to their minds uh, the Messiah, of course. And at that time, they laid palm branches down for that family to, to signify victory over the enemy. And that's what they were so ready for in the first century. A conquering warrior to come and deliver them from Rome, to bring Israel back to their place of prominence, just as the Old Testament had predicted. That's what they expected of the Messiah. And that's why they laid the the palm branches down here. They were ready to announce victory, right? This is our time. This is Israel's time. And knowing that Jesus could raise the dead, remember many of them had seen them Him raised Lazarus from the dead. Knowing this gave them great hope that this was the time. And so they laid their branches down and they quoted from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're crying Hosanna, which means save now or save we pray. Save we pray. They're begging for salvation, expecting that now is their time and that Jesus is that one. Ironically, Jesus was indeed riding in to bring salvation, wasn't he? Unfortunately, it was not the kind of salvation they were hoping for. And that will become more apparent as Jesus begins to speak later in the chapter. In the coming weeks, we'll see that we'll see the crowd change before our eyes. They're worshiping Him, and they totally change on that. Jesus comes humbly riding on a donkey. As I mentioned before, it was a horse that would be ridden by a conquering warrior. That's what they expected. When a king would come to make war, he would ride a horse. But a donkey was the animal of a peacemaker, not a warrior. 
The crowd wanted revolt. But Jesus was bringing a posture of peace. Remember, that's what He said in Luke 19. The things which make for your peace. We'll see in a moment. He was talking about a totally different peace than what they had in mind. Even the prophecy from Zechariah 9 was a prophecy of a peacemaking Messiah. Flip over with me to Zechariah real quick. And we're close to wrapping up here. Zechariah 9. Let's read verses 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It says he's lowly. He's riding on a, a, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And verse 10 says that he shall speak, he shall speak peace to the nations. And then it says his dominion shall be from sea to sea. I think this prophecy, again, has elements that haven't been fulfilled yet. I think elements of this are going to be fulfilled in his second coming, when his earthly dominion shall be from sea to sea. But we see here a posture of peace, not of war, not of conquering. Even at his birth, remember in Luke 2, the angels announced to the shepherds, peace and goodwill toward men. See, it wasn't peace as a result of conquering the Roman Empire that Jesus came to bring. He wasn't promising that kind of peace. He wasn't promising instant world peace. No, Jesus came in to, to bring the Jews and all who would believe in Him something much better than world peace. And that's peace with God. That is the peace that Jesus came to bring. That is the peace that as He's looking over Jerusalem in Luke 19... And he says, if you only knew the things that which made for your peace, that is peace with God. If you only knew what I was really coming to do. He was lowly, riding on a donkey, representing his ushering in of his peace with God that he would bring, which would only be possible through his death, through his blood. Understand, the only way you can have peace with God this morning is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is the only way. Otherwise, God has wrath toward you this morning. He loves you enough to send Jesus. But make no mistake, He will not tolerate your sin. That's why He has provided the remedy to pay for that sin, to push it out of the way. And to bring peace with Himself. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brought, brought peace, but not the kind of peace that Israel was hoping for. As we continue in this passage next week, we'll see Jesus speak about the purpose of His coming. And, and we'll begin to see the nation trade in that peace with God because they were looking for this totally different kind of peace. They go from hailing Him as King to what we read in verse 37. It says, Although He had done so many signs before them, 
They did not believe in Him. That's how this chapter is going to progress. See, they wanted Him as a worldly Savior, but not as King and Master of their hearts. They wanted the the good things that He could bring them, but they didn't want Him. They wanted earthly comforts, and they were ready to trade in eternal paradise with Him for those earthly, temporary comforts. They rejected the peace with God brought by the Prince of Peace. And it's the same for many today who simply wish to continue to be lords of their own lives and who will not come to this Prince of Peace and receive eternal life. And they trade eternal bliss for some temporary happiness. Or so they think happiness. Even in that pursuit of happiness, what they find instead is continual emptiness. Continual unfulfillment. Maybe that's you this morning and and you've been running from the Savior. Well, don't blame it on a lack of evidence. The evidence is clear. And He is the only one who can rid you of the guilt that you feel before God. He is the only one who paid the penalty for that guilt and sin. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that you can have the peace that you so desperately want. And boy, we all want it. Come to Him this morning. And the way you come is through repentance of your sin. Repentance of your sin. That means telling Him you're sorry and truly meaning that in your heart. And deciding, I'm going to turn away from that sin. I'm turning away from my life and I'm going to follow Jesus. That is true repentance this morning. I'm going to turn away from my desires, my wants, my sin, and I'm going to follow the Savior. Will you do that this morning? If you need to do that. In just a few moments, we're going to Um, We're going to move into a time of communion where we as believers can come together to celebrate this wonderful Savior. I'm going to ask Drew to come on. Uh, But we're going to celebrate together this Savior who has paid our debt. Aren't you glad that He has paid your sin debt this morning? Anybody glad of that? Come on, church. Amen. Amen. He has paid our sin debt this morning. As we move into this time, I want, you to, I want to ask you to examine your heart. Though I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And first of all, if you need to come to Jesus for the first time, then come. Through repentance and faith. Confess your sin to Him this morning. Tell Him you're sorry that He has had to pay the ultimate price for your sin. And turn to Jesus. Surrender your life to Him this morning. Believers, you may want to take this time to confess any sin that might be keeping you from having a clear conscience before God this morning. Paul gives us a very clear warning in 1 Corinthians about taking partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily, when, there's, when we're holding sin in our hearts. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, 
First of all, I would ask you to not partake. Unless right now in this moment you are confessing your sin, you are coming to Christ for the first time, then then come and partake, please. For the first time, you can truly celebrate the blood and the body of Christ which was shed and broken for us. But even as Christians this morning, there may be sin that we're harboring. I want to ask you that in this moment you confess that sin. Confess that sin. Ask Him to open your eyes. Reveal things to you that you maybe don't even realize that are coming between you and Him this morning. Not giving you that clear conscience before God. Ask Him to search you. Reveal anything wicked in you this morning. So that we may confess that. just overwhelmed by the God that we serve who would not only send his only son to be tortured for us and who would raise him from the dead but then he would write this book that is so specific how could we miss it And He would preserve His Word throughout the century so that we can have it today. We can read this prophecy in Daniel 9. We can see how specific our God is. We can see how detail-oriented our God is. And we can just declare our trust for Him this morning. Let's do that as we move into this time of, of confession and this time of communion. Let's take this time to celebrate together. Let's celebrate the wonders that we have in God's Word. And let's celebrate the blood that was shed for us and the body broken for us. Let's celebrate this amazing freedom we have in Christ. You tell Him how thankful you are this morning. We're going to give you a few moments to just reflect. Um, You do what you need to do with Christ this morning. And then we're going to sing a song. As we're singing that song, uh, feel free to stand and join. Feel free to stay seated and and reflect. Um, but as we as we go through that song, when you're ready, uh, you can go ahead and go back to the table and, and grab the cracker and the juice, um, and then bring it back to your seat. And then David's going to come and and lead us, and we're going to partake together after we sing this song. So you just in these moments of quietness, you just do what you need to do with Jesus. thank you for this day and I thank you for everyone here Lord I thank you that we can come together to worship you I thank you for your death and your resurrection Lord um, that we don't have to pay for our own sins because we can't Lord I thank you that you lived 
the, the perfect life that we couldn't so that you could be the perfect lamb um, to, to, cover, to cover us, Lord. I thank you for your resurrection so that we can live in newness of life, Lord, and, and it gives us faith um, to trust you knowing that you have power over life and death. And Lord, we thank you that you're coming again so that we can have hope for the future. Lord, I pray that these truths will uh, change our hearts, Lord. I pray that what Josh preached on today, Lord, uh, that that will change our hearts, Lord, because your word, if it's not changing our hearts, there's something wrong. So Lord, I pray that we'll believe it and uh, that we'll trust in what you've done for us. Lord, and it will change our hearts. I pray that we'll share it with those around us. And Lord, I, I thank you for all that you do for us. You, you who are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.